Straight from the Mayor's Mouth, with Matthew Dickerson from Dubbo Regional Council. Hello and welcome to another episode of Straight from the Mayor's Mouth. We've got one more week as a solo event and then we'll have our regular host, Mark Barnes, back again next week. I think it's important enough to make sure that people understand and hear what's going on from a council perspective, from a Dubbo Regional Council local government area perspective, that I continue on solo, even though I must admit I do feel like the show flows better with two people doing it. But I'll continue on from a solo perspective this week. First one I want to talk about, of course, is Remembrance Day, the 11th day of the 11th month. It was on Saturday last week. Now, Remembrance Day is a little bit different to Anzac Day, obviously. It's at a different time of the year, and there's a few things that are a bit different. Anzac Day has a dawn service and then a mid-morning service. Anzac Day typically, and I remember this year, I think it was probably around 5,000, 6,000 people that attended Anzac Day. Fewer people attend Remembrance Day, but some people argue that the significance of Remembrance Day, the end of World War One, there may be even more significance to it. I'm not going to get into the argument about which is the most significant day. It's, I think, in our democracy, the wonderful nation that we have, both days are significant, and I think it is nice to be able to honour those people, about 102,000 people that have died serving a nation, but it doesn't tell the full story because it doesn't tell the full story of how many were injured and how many are injured, but we don't know they're injured. And I'm talking about things like PTSD, the mental impact. This was impacting people a long time before we had the term PTSD. And a lot of people that returned from various wars if really, they suffered in silence, and that's something that is a huge sacrifice, an ongoing sacrifice. People that died made a sacrifice with their life, the ultimate sacrifice. People that came back sometimes had to suffer decades of a, an unpleasant life. So Remembrance Day was on Saturday. It's an event that's run between the RSL sub-branch and Dubbo Regional Council. I think the organisation of that works very well, and again, it was nice to be there on the day and nice to interact with the RSL sub-branch, Sean Graham's president there, and the crowd that was there. I will talk a little bit more about Remembrance Day at the end of the program today, but again, nice event, nice, well-organised day for the community and good to see people in the community turning up. And the McDonald's restaurants are back in the news it was back in February this year, from memory, that I had a few media inquiries around the fact that McDonald's had lodged a DA, or actually I wasn't even sure if it was McDonald's, but a DA had been lodged for a fourth McDonald's. And so I had some people in the media asking me why I was going to allow a fourth McDonald's. Surely we didn't need a fourth McDonald's. And it's interesting. My opinion about McDonald's is irrelevant in this particular scenario. The media's opinion about McDonald's is irrelevant. When a DA is received by council, the staff don't assess the DA based on whether or not they might eat that particular type of food or they might buy that individual product. I've seen people before ask me about different businesses that might have a DA in and they've told me that there's no way that that business will make money in Dubbo. And again, that's not something that we consider as part of the DA. So we don't consider the other competing products. We don't consider the commercial viability. We don't consider the colour of the logo. 
In the McDonald's example, we don't consider the fact that they've got three other McDonald's and they're applying for a fourth McDonald's. This is all about market forces. This is all about what the demand is in the marketplace. I don't have privy to McDonald's figures, their financial figures. I don't have privy to the calculations they do to work out whether or not a McDonald's, an additional McDonald's restaurant will be viable in a certain area. But I'm pretty certain they've got a reasonably sophisticated business model. And all I can say is that if they're applying for a DA or putting in a DA for a fourth McDonald's, they must have determined that the market demand is there for it. Now, when our staff assess the DA, they assess the DA based on land use regulations, legislation, zoning. Is it a complying development? A whole range of normal processes they go through to look at the actual building and the type of business that it will be. Again, they don't look at whether or not they eat that particular type of food. And you can see the slippery slope you would go down if that's what it came down to. If it came down to whether our staff, or for that matter, whether councillors chose a particular product or liked a particular product, well, that to me would open up a whole range of potential for corruption. And it would be very difficult for a developer to develop in different areas around the state or around the country. Uh, We can't develop that particular product in that particular community at the moment because those councillors don't like this product. We'll wait till the next group of councillors is elected. It would be, I think, a, a bit of a dog's breakfast in terms of that development process. Now, most of the DAs that we receive each month are assessed by our staff. And some of those DAs might be, for example, for a small garage or some establishment around someone's house. It might even be for a house. Not every one of those DAs comes to council. There are certain triggers about when a DA will come to council. And there's a process that we go through where we as councillors allocate the delegations that the CEO has as in terms of doing the job of the CEO. And those delegations are important so that the council can function, the council can run without having to bring everything back to council. But we do want certain things brought back to councillors to be able to make certain decisions on. Tenders is one of those things. There's tenders when a tender's put out for a product that we might be buying over a certain value, then the delegation for the CEOs not to be able to make those decisions without coming back through a council meeting. In terms of a DA, again, it would be ridiculous to have every DA that goes to council for every little thing that happened to come back to a council meeting. It would slow down the whole process. It would basically bog down the system. But also council meetings might go for a couple of days because we'd have to be assessing each of those individual DAs. But there are eight triggers where the CEO doesn't have the ability to approve a DA. And when I say the CEO approves it, typically it will be done by the planning staff and the CEO would have the final sign-off for those DAs based on the information presented to the CEO by planning staff. So I'll just run through a few of these. If there's a DA that the community or people want to have brought to council, then there's some certain triggers. For example, if there's a petition with eight or more signatures from separate households within the notification area, if that petition's been received and the application has not been refused, then that will come to council. Or where eight or more valid planning objections to the DA have been received from separate households within the notification area and the application's not been received. So effectively, eight 
different people around where the DA was lodged could have said, I want this to come to council. If there is a development where there's a major variation of more than 10% from council's development standards under clause 4.6 of the Deborah Regional Council LEP, then that will also come to council. The other one that's an interesting one is if two or more councillors request a DA. So, for example, if there was a DA out there in the community that people were aware of, so again, go back to February this year, a DA has been lodged for a fourth McDonald's. If people in the community say, well, I really want that to go to council, I want that decision to be made by councillors, then it only takes two or more councillors to make that formal request to the CEO and that will then be brought to a council meeting. So it'll go through the normal process with our staff and that will come to a council meeting. So if councillors were particularly concerned about this DA for McDonald's, it only needed two of them to bring that forward. If So that was the fourth one. The fifth reason it would come to council is any matter subject to appeal where the matter has gone to a hearing or Section 34A conference. So some of these are fairly technical ones. The sixth one is applications where income is to be foregone, such as a reduction in developer contributions levied under an adopted Section 94 plan or Section 64 policy. Now, I have seen that happen a few times in my council career where there might be an application by a developer to reduce the contributions Well, our staff don't have the ability just to reduce those contributions, and that's done with good reason. You want to remove the ability for random ad hoc decisions to be made by the staff. You want to make sure that if you're going to have some of those decisions made, you need to bring it to a full public meeting where you've got a group of councillors, a majority vote will win the day rather than one staff member. The number 7.7 is if the DA has an estimated value higher than $5 million unless the DA is going to be determined by a joint regional planning panel. So when you get some of those higher-end DAs, they do come to council. And then point number eight is a really interesting one. This is one thing that when we're doing these delegations, I know this is one that we debated long and hard, and this is going back to the beginning of 2022, we debated long and hard amongst councillors whether this was a relevant one to bring forward and we did end up putting this in the delegations. A DA that's recommended for refusal must go to an ordinary meeting of council for determination. Now, the reason that one is in there is because it's another way of removing the possibility of corruption. Now, when I say these comments I'm about to say, let me just flag to begin with by saying that I'm not suggesting that our staff are corrupt in any way, shape or form. I'm not suggesting we've had corrupt behaviour with staff with DAs, and that's in particular our staff, both at Dubbo City Council and Dubbo Regional Council. But there have been examples across the state and across the nation where you have seen corrupt behaviour by staff in various examples, and you have to do much Googling to find a few of those examples. I would say that 99.9% of staff working in councils do things honestly, do things for the best outcome for the community and they're following all the rules. But of course, you'll always get some occasional bad apples. One of the reasons that I think it's important to have any refusals going to an ordinary meeting of council is it removes the ability for any staff member, for example, if one day council had a staff member who was prone to corruption, again, not suggesting any of the staff members are, but if that was a possibility at some stage in the future, then If you had a staff member talking to a developer and said, again, let's go right out there, I need you to pay me $100,000 or I'm going to refuse this DA. 
Now, that puts a developer in a very tough position. He wants he or she wants the DA to go through. They don't want to be involved in corruption, of course. They're being held basically at gunpoint or being held with this threat that the DA will be refused unless they do something that is required. By removing the ability for any staff member to refuse a DA, it means that that staff member no longer has the power to actually refuse a DA. It must go to a council meeting. Then, if you're a corrupt staff member trying to threaten, for example, a developer, you've got to then be confident that you're going to get a majority of councillors that you can somehow persuade to go against the planning rules or go against what the developer might be submitting to refuse a DA. And that's a whole different ballgame. And I think it's probably a step too far for any staff member to to go down that path. So I think that one is an important one. And even when you get to council, councillors can be corrupt as well. And again, I'm not suggesting any of our councillors are. I think we've got a fantastic group of councillors. But across the state, it's been proven in the past that we've seen some corrupt MPs and some corrupt councillors. So people in powerful positions, in decision-making positions, have been corrupt. By going to the vote in that way as well, then again, you're assuming that you can get the majority of councillors. So in our scenario, we'd need to get six councillors to be corrupted to be able to say to a developer, pay a certain amount of money or do something we want you to do, otherwise we'll refuse that DA. So it's an interesting one. McDonald's, that DA has now been approved. If people aren't happy with that, then I'd suggest they stop buying McDonald's because the market demand is obviously there. If McDonald's determines that they'll have four McDonald's in Dubbo, obviously people are buying McDonald's. And again, I'm not telling people to stop buying McDonald's, but the market demand is there, obviously. And that DA has now been approved. It'll be up to McDonald's to decide whether or not they go ahead and build that. But it complied with all the legislation, all the requirements for that DA. Therefore, our staff went through a process. Now, if it did come to a council meeting, and if, for example, councillors said, gee, I think this is for whatever reason, bad. I don't like the colour yellow. I don't like the big M. Whatever reason, they decided councillors can refuse a DA and go essentially outside the legislation, outside the process, the technical processes that our development staff would have gone through. But there's a big risk associated with that. If councillors don't have a valid technical reason for refusing a DA, then that developer can quite easily go to the Land Environment Court and I dare say they would win quite easily if councillors decided to refuse a DA just because. Just they didn't like something about that, they didn't like the company, whatever reason they might decide not to approve that if it's not done from a technical perspective. And if it goes Land Environment Court and they find in favour and they find there was no technical basis for councillors to refuse that, then more than likely council will end up paying the costs of not only our side of the argument, but the other side of the argument as well. So the whole reason the planning laws are in place is to basically put a framework in place that makes developers have confidence and gives planning staff the ability to make sure they're judging DAs based on the technical requirements, not on the whim of a certain person at any given point in time. Now, depending on when you listen to this 
particular podcast, but if it's at the beginning of the week, if it's soon after it drops on Sunday mornings, then you'll have a, an experience where most of the councillors at the at the moment are at a local government New South Wales conference. We've got eight of our 10 councillors attending the local government New South Wales conference this year, and this will be the last conference that this group of 10 has the ability to go to. Now, I've said many times, I think the local government New South Wales conference is a really important one. 128 councils across the state. Typically, most of them, not all of them, but most of them will have the CEO slash GM and the mayor and maybe a couple of councillors there present. It's a pretty big conference. You've typically got 600, 700, maybe even more than that attending that conference. But it's a really good chance to share ideas, to talk to each other, to go through a process and just learn about local government. Now, I've talked about it before, of the 10 councils we've got on council at this stage, nine have never been on Dubbo Regional Council before, eight have never been on any council before. So you've got a group that have got some experience now because we're fairly way into our term, but it's always good to go to those conferences, learn more about it and just do some networking, talk to people. It's not a junket. I mean, I'm sure some people will be thinking this is just another junket. Most councillors went down Sunday morning or Sunday lunchtime and in, in essence that's their day off. They don't get paid extra for being there on a Sunday so they'll attend some events on Sunday. There'll be a welcome function Sunday night, probably a dinner on Sunday night. Then there'll be a full day conference on Monday. There'll be a dinner on Monday night and then Tuesday goes for most of the day and then most councillors will probably fly or drive back home on Tuesday night. And typically those councillors that work have got jobs that's two days off from their normal work two days annual leave they might have taken if someone that owns their own business and they're away from their business for those two days so it is a commitment but one that I think is a valuable commitment and one that I think you never really know what you're going to get out of attending a conference there are lots of things you get out of attending conferences lots of ideas lots of information there's debate about various motions about what's happening this is a a process that it's run like a big council meeting essentially motion to put forward it's debated on the floor and then those are policy positions of local government new south wales that they can go to the state and federal governments with to say this is what the majority of our membership believes we should be doing so it's a a position just like a council meeting it's a position that the local government new south wales organization can take and go forward so i'm sure we'll have lots of good ideas lots of discussion and it's also good to share some of the things that we've been doing in dubbo as well many people want to find out about what we've been doing how we've been going with our 3d printed toilet for example what other things we're working on how's the res going how's our one and a half percent framework going all sorts of things there so again i'm sure i'll read in the media somewhere or on some social media site about it councillors attending another junket but i fully support eight i'd support all ten going to a local government New South Wales conference to keep learning more and being better educated to deliver the best outcomes for our community. Now just a quick plug for anyone out there that knows some people that have moved to Dubbo or any new residents of Dubbo that have been or are listening to this particular podcast we do a new resident evening on a regular basis, typically twice a year, and that's really an opportunity for us to say, thanks for coming to Dubbo, thanks for moving to Dubbo, welcome, and we really want those new residents to be a part of our community. So on Wednesday the 15th of November 
at 5.30 p.m. through about 7.30 p.m. typically it wraps up. At the Dubbo Visitors Information Centre, there's a new resident evening. Now, we don't check your details at the door and say you didn't move here in the last six months. It was seven months ago that you moved here, so you're not allowed in. If you identify as a new resident, that might mean that you moved here last week or last month or maybe in the last year. If you think of yourself as a new resident of Dubbo, we'd like you to come along. Now, there's a few reasons. One is it's just nice to say welcome. It's nice to say thank you for choosing Dubbo. Out of all the places you could live in the world, you chose Dubbo, and that's fantastic. I'm pretty excited by that. But we want you to be part of our community. So typically we'll have a few different community groups. It might be sporting clubs. It might be service clubs, different organisations that help you be a part of our community. And for me personally, if I ever move somewhere else, and I really can't see me doing that, I can't think of anywhere else that I'd prefer to live than Dubbo. So if I did move somewhere else in the hypothetical situation, I would find somewhere that rode mountain bikes or some groups that rode mountain bikes, and I'd go and try and be involved in that. I'd meet a few people doing that, and I'd get to learn a bit about the community. I'd also find the local Rotary Club. So I'd say, well, can I join the Rotary Club? I used to be a member when I was back in Dubbo, and I want to join this Rotary Club again. I feel like I can give back to that community and also meet some people in that process. So there'd be a couple of basic things that I'd do to begin with to try and get involved in the community. And I would encourage people that have moved to Dubbo to do exactly the same thing. Once you move to Dubbo, then we want you to stay here. We think you're more likely to stay here if you are a part of the community and feel like you're a part of the community and you're involved in the community. So that's nice as well. But it's also a really good night where I love to find out where people have moved from. And we do a few little games on the night and just give a few prizes away. But one of the ones I love to do is I I love to find out how far people have moved from. And we find that some people have moved 50 kilometres and some people have moved 5,000 or 10,000 kilometres. And I love those stories about people that have moved from somewhere else in the world. And Australia is a great nation, there's no doubt about that. Again, when they move from another nation to this country, We've got 7.7 million square kilometres. So you've got a fair few choices as to where to move to. And having said that, there's probably some places in the middle of the Simpson Desert you might want to move to, but you've got a fair variety of locations to move to. Why did you choose our 7,536 square kilometre area to move to? I want to know those stories. I want to know how that happened, what came about, what the bottom line was for you coming here. So interesting evening. Again, as a reminder, 15th of November, Wednesday night, 15th of November, 5.30pm at the Dubbo Visitors Information Centre. We prefer people to register before they come, but it's not absolutely essential. We only like people to register, so we've got an idea of numbers for the catering that we do. You can go online to the Dubbo Council, Dubbo Regional Council website and look at how to register there, or as they just turn up at 5.30pm on Wednesday night. I look forward to seeing lots of new residents there on Wednesday night. Now we had our committee, our standing committee meetings during the week on Thursday night. They were held and there's always interesting things to talk about from those meetings. First one I want to talk about is the concept of the name of the new Dubbo Bridge. Now this is an interesting one. It's one of those ones where you're never quite sure who has the ultimate decision-making ability in relation to this particular concept. And we saw a bit of that with the various bus stops around Dubbo. The state government, Transport from New South Wales, chose locations and then they wanted council to endorse them. 
if we didn't endorse them, I'm not sure that we've got the power to say no to them. We can go back to Transport for New South Wales and say we don't endorse them, but ultimately the state government overrules what might happen in relation to those bus stops. Now, the new Dubbo Bridge and a reclassification of a road are two that have come to council, but I'm not convinced that we actually have the final decision-making ability. The first one I'll talk about is the reclassification of a road. Now, once the new bridge is finished, and I'll call it the new Dubbo Bridge for the moment because it hasn't got an official name or any other official name, once the new Dubbo Bridge is completed, then the newer highway will go across that new Dubbo Bridge and then turn up into River Street. At the moment, the Newell Highway turns over the Susia Bridge and, and goes up Erskine Street and turns left onto Burke Street. So that section of Burke Street is essentially part of the Newell Highway. If it's a highway, the state government is responsible for that. What the state government or the Transport for New South Wales has asked us to do is they've asked us to endorse the reclassification of Burke Street from River Street to Erskine Street, from being a state road, as in a highway, to a regional road. Now, personally, I'd prefer it was still classified a state road. If it's a state road, we don't have to do any maintenance. The state government takes care of the maintenance of that particular section of road. If it turns into a local road, it's entirely our responsibility. In this case, they've asked us to endorse the reclassification to a regional road. Now, a regional road means that we would do the work on it, but we might typically get a little bit of money from the state government for that. So that's one thing where they've asked us to endorse the reclassification and we say yes. If we say no, I think it would just be an unpleasant conversation where they would say, well, thank you, but we're going to reclassify it anyway because we don't get to be the ones that ultimately decide on reclassification. You may remember in the media it's been talked about a little bit, where there were some processes in place in the last government where they were going to reclassify a range of roads so that the state government was doing some maintenance on those, but that reclassification didn't happen. Again, it wasn't a lack of will from various councils across the state. It was a state government because ultimately they've got to do that reclassification. Now, in the recommendation from council is that part of that process is that we want the road to be an acceptable condition prior to formalisation of the reclassification. Now, that was done quite deliberately because one of the arguments put forward by the state government previously was that they weren't reclassifying some of those roads because they weren't in a good enough condition to be handed back to the state government or handed to the state government. So we thought it was only fair and reasonable that it went the other way. So that's a minor thing. People won't really notice much difference there. It'll just be some extra expense for council. The second part of the resolution from the Infrastructure Planning and Environment Committee meeting on this particular issue was that Council partners with Transport for New South Wales on the consultation process for the naming of the new bridge. Now, who's responsible for the name of the new bridge? Hmm, not quite sure. The Geographical Names Board doesn't name bridges, however, the Call it the GNB, the Geographical Names Board of New South Wales. The GNB encourages the naming of bridges to follow the place naming policy published by the GNB. So, in line with the policy, local government initiates the naming of the bridges and Transport for New South Wales approves these proposals. So, if we proposed a name that Transport for New South Wales didn't like, then they would say, We don't approve that. So, 
ultimately it sounds like Transport for New South Wales get to be the ones to make the final decision. When they're approving the proposals, Transport for New South Wales considers the following items in approving. The name needs to have wide community support. If an Aboriginal name is chosen, it needs to have the support of local Aboriginal groups. Consideration has been given to national and state commemorative initiatives involving the naming of new key road infrastructure. The name is consistent with the GMB place name criteria and the design of the name plaque accords with Transport for New South Wales requirements. Sounds very technical then when you're starting to talk about an actual plaque. At the committee meeting on Thursday night, it was pointed out that it would be nice to have an Aboriginal name and maybe when this recommendation goes back to the council meeting, because of course committee meetings don't make council resolutions, they make recommendations to council, maybe we might even consider adding that, that we, in terms of that consultation process, we'd like to see an Aboriginal name if that's what councillors decide on, for example. But it's an interesting process. The consultation will be done by Transport for New South Wales in consultation with council, but we'd prefer that Transport for New South Wales pay for that because we obviously want to reduce any expenses we can from our perspective. So that'll happen. There'll be some community engagement. There'll be some proposals put forward. There'll be a whole range of different items that'll be discussed in that. But ultimately, there'll be a name that council will recommend to Transport for New South Wales and then hopefully they'll approve that. So it's an interesting one and one of those very technical ones about who actually has the ability to name something and who gets the final decision-making process. One of the other items that's in the Infrastructure Planning and Environment Committee each month is the building summary. So this gives you an idea of where we're at in terms of building approvals for the year so far. And you've heard me talk about it before, that we like to look at those and then extrapolate those on the same average to see what it might mean in terms of the overall year. Now, we were on track previously to have a record year. If we go back to the 2015-16 year, the last year of Dubbo City Council, 488 total dwellings were approved in that year. And since then, we've had some some declines and then it started to pick up again with this new council. So 2021-2022, 458 approvals. 2022-2023, 468 approvals. If we continue on at the same rate that we're going at the moment, based on the first four months of this year, July, August, September and October, based on those, then we would hit 477. So not quite a record year, but the best year since that 2015-2016 year. The other part that's interesting, of course, is the value and look at how much some of those developments are worth, because some of those developments are changing. For example, in October we had a multi-dwelling housing, 25 units, approved, valued at almost $3 million in Wellington, and some school alterations in addition in Bungalgumby Road were approved, valued at $1.7 million. So there were a couple of significant ones. If you look at the value of development applications approved for the financial year to date compared to the same period last year, it's up by about $10.4 million. So overall, even though we've had interest rate increases, we've had building increases in terms of, sorry, the cost of building increases, then still, despite those, we're still seeing a fairly strong process going forward. And and I think a fairly strong building environment, and that makes sense because 
we do have a lot of people moving to Dubbo. And there's so much activity happening in Dubbo. It's a pretty exciting time to be involved in any part of Dubbo. In the Culture and Community Committee, we also had a report from the students that returned back from their visit to Nakamo. Now, if we go back, Dubbo first participated in a student exchange with Nakamo way back in around 1990, I think it was. So that program ran until 2020. And of course, then we had a three-year hiatus with COVID. This is the first year it's come back in. And so we had 10 students who were selected. So 33 students applied. So there's a lot of interest in the program. That's obviously very exciting. And keep in mind that council does make a contribution. $1,000 off the top of my head is what's given to each student to contribute to cost. But these students are typically paying costs themselves. And that $1,000 is a total amount that they're given. So they've still got to pay for their plane tickets. They've still got to pay for any other expenses associated with it. Typically, they're put out into or billeted, if you like, out into various homes, so you don't have to pay much in terms of accommodation when you're in Japan. And these students also typically have received some students when the Minakamo students were here, and they've hosted students as well. So it's a bit of a commitment. The 10 students that went across out of those 33, so those 33, that was narrowed down to 15 students for interview, and then 10 students were chosen from that. So it's a pretty tough process to be selected in it. And the 10 students, I'll run through those quickly, Elizabeth Butcherine from Dubbo College South Campus, Lucy Ether from Dubbo College Delroy Campus, Noah Randell from Central West Leadership Academy, Madeline Leggett from Central West Leadership Academy, Jessica Bywater from St. John's College, Yusuf Ritter from Dubbo Senior Campus, Imogen Bassett from Central West Leadership Academy, Brenton Richards from Dubbo Christian School, Abigail Pierce from Dubbo College Delroy Campus, and Jim Richardson from Dubbo College Senior Campus. So you can see a range of schools that participated there, which is, again, fantastic. And you also had Sophie Eastburn, who didn't go on the exchange. Uh, She's from St. John's College, but she did host some Japanese students during their visit to Dubbo. So thank you to Sophie for doing that as well. And Elizabeth Butcherine hosted some additional students and the chaperones there. So they would have had a pretty full household with all those people there. The chaperones on the trip to Japan were Kim Rice Harland and Stuart Harland. And again, that's a great commitment they make. They both took time from work. They did have a small contribution from council, but they had to pay for the rest themselves. So it's a pretty big commitment. And I think all of those people that are involved because I believe the exchange program that we have with Minakamo, in fact, the relationship we have with Minakamo is very strong. And the fact that these people are prepared to put their hand in their own pockets is very exciting. So they went through and gave a report on that. Needless to say, I won't go through all the details of that, but a very powerful visit. I think everyone gets a lot out of it, people that visit, the people they they talk to, just the discussion, the exchange of ideas, of culture, a whole range of, of advantages, I think, for our community and for the Japanese community. And I know Rotary is a big fan of doing student exchanges. They've done that for decades now, and they believe it brings the world closer together. I think this is exactly the same thing where it does bring our community and the Japanese community closer together. In fact, next year, we're going on a delegation with councillors and community members going across on official delegation. We're going into South Korea first and then going into Japan to see Minakamo. And I'm sure I'll read about it in the media. I'll read about it on social media somewhere. There'll be some junket. But 
where we give $1,000 to those students and those chaperones when counsellors go across for the official exchange that we'll be doing next year, or not exchange, the official delegation, the council policy is that zero dollars are contributed. So all those councillors that travel across, when they read about those accusations of junkets, etc., council will have paid nothing for that visit. They'll all be paying it from their own personal money. And community members that go across as well will be doing the same thing. And I remember being very disappointed years ago when we had a delegation that went across to either Wuzhang or Minakamo, I can't remember which one of our sister cities we visited. There were some councillors that went, there were some community members that went. And when I got back, I read a story in the paper that said about councillors and community members on a junket using council funds. And I thought it was a bit disappointing from councillors, but I thought sometimes when you stand for a position, you expect to get unfair criticism. But I thought it was particularly unfair to the community members. And so I did actually contact the editor of that particular newspaper and I said, look, councillors, that's disappointing, but whatever. But for the community members who have given up their personal time, they're not elected officials, they are just community members who have taken time off work, paid their own personal money and gone on this to represent our city and then they're given a hard time on the paper for being on a council junket. I thought that was particularly unfair and the editor took that on board and actually did print another story that pointed out the fact that those community members did pay for that all themselves, which I thought was good for that correction, but I was disappointed to see that in the first place. So that'll happen next year at some stage. South Korea, I'll talk a little bit more about that in the future as to why we're going there, but that will be, I think, another good, valuable delegation and keep increasing that bond between Japan and Australia and between Minakamo and Dubbo in terms of that sister relationship we've had for a long time. Another item discussed at the Culture and Community Committee was in relation to the SPARC grant assessments. Now, the idea here is that we've got money, $10,000, as part of the SPARC cultural plan to provide some financial support for creative and cultural programs that help focus on the cultural plan that we've got. Now, we'd love to have more money. We'd love to have more money to give to different groups. We've got $10,000 allocated for this. We received $63,927 of requests. So we couldn't satisfy all of that with the budget we had available to us. So unfortunately, some tough decisions had to be made. Now, again, this is the recommendation to council. This isn't a formal council resolution yet. But what we decided from those applications was that we would allocate $1,600 to Oroscon Dubbo, $2,000 to Dubbo and District Family History, $4,000 to University of the Third Age, and $2,400 to spare parts Wellington. That adds up to $10,000. So that's the recommendation at this stage. And again, it's disappointing that we can't give out that $63,000, but it does show how many different groups we've got in our local government area that are focused on parts of that cultural plan. So that's a very much a positive, but certainly a bit disappointing. And I do apologise to all those organisations that we can't fund. We just simply don't have the funds to fund all of those, unfortunately. During my time back on council this time around, I've had a few requests from people that would like to see a 
plaque may be applied to a tree or a tree planted for some particular person or some event or even uh, seats some street furniture. And I know in the past it's been done a little bit ad hoc, so I might make an application and then that's assessed on an individual. Well, I'm not sure that an application is the right word. Someone makes a request and then there's a bit of a discussion around that and then they're given the, the yes or the no around that. But I thought we could do a bit better than that and I talked to a few councillors and in the end, Councillor Goff brought forward a notice of motion to formalise a policy and that whole idea of that policy was to have something that was consistent and in place for public memorials and donation of furniture and trees. So that policy was formulated by our our staff, put together by our staff, discussed with councillors, then went in draft format to a council meeting and then that's been out on public display. We've brought that back now and so we've now, again, not formally approved it, we've recommended to go to council to be formally approved. Once that's approved, assuming that it goes through council, the next council meeting, then we'll have a formal policy. So those people that have been out there talking about doing a street bit of street furniture, I'm talking about a park bench, that type of thing, or maybe planting a tree or having something significant to maybe commemorate the anniversary of a significant organisation or maybe a significant person that's been involved in Dubbo, then at least we'll have a policy and that means that we've got a framework and also a path for members of the public to make those donations of park furniture trees or the top of plaques that would be on those particular pieces of furniture, etc. So I think that's a really important one. And I am a big fan of having some form of policy in place, something that's formal rather than something that's just ad hoc and then it depends on who you talk to in the day. So I think that's a good move by council and anyone that's got those ideas to have some of those pieces of furniture or trees, etc. they might want to put in the community, then now you've got a policy to go and have a look at. So I encourage you to look at that. There are a number of different organisations that I meet with on a regular basis just to make sure we've got those lines of communication open. I am a big fan of communication. I'm a big fan of regular meetings. I mean, I do it with almost all the councillors every month where I sit down and have a, a meeting about an hour or so. You'll talk about different things and you don't necessarily have something burning to talk about, but you just want to make sure you've got that good open lines of communication there. And you'll talk about nothing in particular or sometimes it turns into something incredibly important, but it means that you're having those regular conversations. I do that with different organisations. So a couple of podcasts ago, I talked about the latest meeting I had with the Dubbo Business Chamber. That's a regular meeting I have. I think it's important that council has a good working relationship with the Dubbo Business Chamber. I've got another one of those meetings coming up this week, and that's with the local police. So I typically meet with Tim Chin every three months and just talk about what's happening in policing and where things are headed and what we can do as a council to help out in that. Now, you've heard me talk about it before. Council does not control the police. Council does not control the sentencing system. We don't control the magistrates. So we've got very little in terms of a legal process where we can be involved in anything related to crime or reducing crime or minimising crime. But if there's anything we can do, if there's anything where we feel we can help out, then obviously we want to do whatever we can do to help out the other organisations that are charged with that responsibility. Police is obviously one of those areas, and so we meet with Tim Chin, and even on Remembrance Day, on Saturday, 
Tim Chin and Brett Greentree were there representing the police and I think that's important that you get those various organisations at things like Remembrance Day but I had a chance to catch up with both those two in an informal environment but again you've got that relationship with different people in the police so you can have those conversations. People do talk a little bit about crime and ask what council's doing about crime and I don't have a magic solution about what to do about crime. There is crime across the entire state, across the entire nation, across the entire world. There's no doubt that crime exists. What you want to do from a a double perspective, from my perspective, is I'll never want to be out there singing from the treetops about crime in Dubbo. That would be a terrible thing to do, to be advertising to the world that you've got crime in Dubbo. What I'm always trying to do is work behind the scenes to see how we can minimise that crime. We don't need to shout about it. We don't need to to yell from the treetops. I don't need to be a hero and tell everyone what a wonderful job I'm doing with crime because, again, my job is not about crime. That's not the primary responsibility from a council perspective, but certainly working behind the scenes quietly is important. So I'll continue that discussion. I'll have that discussion with Tim Chin. Brett Greentree typically doesn't come to those discussions. It's really about the, the local command that we talk with in terms of Tim Chin and, again, see what council can do. But ultimately, it's really just about information. That's really the ultimate outcome of those conversations. Typically, it's about information more than us doing something in particular because, again, our powers in relation to that are particularly limited. Now, at our Corporate Services Standing Committee meeting on Thursday night, one of the issues, one of the items on the agenda was the Independent Financial Sustainability Review. Now, it's fair to say that if you want to get people interested, involved in what council is doing, you only need to say, we're putting rates up, and suddenly everyone wants to tune in, suddenly people become more engaged. The message is much more complicated than we're putting rates up, and I'll go through that in a little bit more detail. But we have been doing a review and looking at our overall sustainability. And I'll give you a background as to why, and I'll actually probably do a bit more analysis of these figures for a future podcast to really drill down in it just a little bit further. But there's a whole range of things to look at. Council is a big business, there's no doubt about that at all. But when I look at some figures, and and I'm going to focus just for a moment on a couple of different parts of all the figures that we get presented. I mean, there's hundreds of pages we get presented each year as councillors to go through and look at in terms of our finances. But I'm going to look at something, and, and the income statements that we present in, and these are all public figures and public information, and we've got to present them in a format that the state government asks for. And sometimes as councillors, in terms of people, councillors being involved as accountants or maybe in their business, some of the things that you report and the way you report it, I've often heard councillors, including myself, say, that's not the way I'd normally expect to see that presented, but it has to adhere with the way the state government wants figures presented from a council perspective, so there's consistency across all 128 councils. One thing that we often look at in terms of the bottom line is what's called the net operating result for the year before grants and contributions provided for capital purposes. So that's the bottom line when we talk about our final result for the year. That's often the bottom line we talk about. Let me go back a little bit in history. If I look at the Dubbo City Council, I don't have access to all the Dubbo, the old Burlington Shire Council figures, but I'm just going to look at Dubbo City Council. In the 2014-15 financial year, so 1st of July 2014 to the 30th of June 2015, the standard financial year, the 
net operating result for the year before granting contributions provided for capital purposes was $4.7 million. So that was a time I was mayor of Dubbo City Council at the time, and Dubbo City Council I thought was going along and quite well. Ultimately, you, you really want that net operating result to be close to zero, but you don't want it to be in the negative. You want to make sure it's in the positive, ticking away there, and in the positive, if you're too far in the positive, it was $50 million, then you'd say, well, we're collecting money from rate base, for example, and we're not using all that money. We should be using that money to deliver those services. Why are we collecting that money if we're not delivering that? So 4.7, I was pretty happy with that at the time when I was mayor. And then I jumped forward to the 2015-2016 financial year. Well, the figures actually end on the 12th of May 2016, because that's when the amalgamation occurred, but it's close enough to the end of the financial year. So to give you an idea, that particular result, that net operating result, was $15.3 million in the positive. Now, when I say net operating result, I'm not going to say it every time, but that's before grants and contributions provided for capital purposes, so I'm just going to call it net operating result. So we then had amalgamation, we had an administrator in charge, and if we look at, for example, the 2017-18 financial year, so we're jumping forward a bit now, the council elections were held in 2017, in September 2017. The administrator was in charge up until that point in time. The budget for the 2017-2018 year was set by the administrator. So the councils that came in, in at the end of 2017 didn't have much of a chance to influence anything there. The result for the 2017-2018 financial year was a positive $24.7 million. So that was a, a maybe too much in the positive, you might say, but, but that was a good positive result. By the next financial year, obviously councillors came along and had the ability to set the budget for the next financial year. They'd been in council for about seven or eight months, and so then once they were there, they had the ability to set that budget that was going forward for the next year. So then where did we start to head? In the 2018-19 financial year, there was a loss of 0.8 of a million dollars. In the 2019-2020 year, there was a loss of 8.3 million dollars. In the 2020-2021 financial year, there was a loss of 11.1 million dollars. So you can see a bit of consistency here and a bit of a change in terms of where we're going. So those three years that that group of councillors had an influence on weren't great, over $20 million of losses there over those three years. December 2021 was then when the next council election was held. Again, the budget had already been set for that year, so the 2021-2022 financial year was pretty hard for that new group of councillors to have much influence on. So the loss for that year, 2021-2022, was another $8.8 million loss. So fairly significant, those losses, and that Again, that budget was set by that last group of councillors. So if you look at those four years where they were basically in charge of that budget, um, then you look at the result of those four years and you've got about $29 million of losses. Now, logic says you can't keep going like that. You might have some money tucked away. You might have a fair amount of money tucked away. Hundreds of millions of dollars might be sitting in the bank but if you're going to keep running along at losses at that level, then it's not sustainable. This group of councillors said we've got to fix that. There's a whole range of problems we had to fix from the last council, but this is certainly another one of those. We can't keep operating at a loss. Now, it is a big ship to turn around when you're suffering losses at that level. 
without going through and making severe cuts, still trying to run a council, run it for the community, still try and run with your staff that you've got there. It's hard to take that and turn it around quickly because it is a big ship, but at least we can start going in the right direction. In the 2022-2023 financial year, the loss had been reduced down to $5.8 million. Now, the scary part of that is that that was the best result since the 2018-2019 year. So that was in the right direction, but still not good enough from our perspective, from this group of council's perspective. We want to see better than that. Now, before I get on to the idea of the special rate variation, let me also talk about just a quick snapshot of our figures. Now, these are the actual figures in our income statements for the year ended 30 June 2023. So this is the 2022-2023 financial year. In rates and annual charges, we received $72.492 million in that. So that's a large amount of money. But if you break that down a little bit, just in ordinary rates. So this is not now rates and annual charges. This is just ordinary rates. So what people would call their normal rates. We received $38.9 million from ordinary rates. Our total income from continuing operations was $213.640 million. So you can see that the rates, the ordinary rates only contributed 18.2% of our total income or rates and annual charges. Often people refer to that as rates because some of those annual charges are pretty much set. So you might say the $72.492 million was 33.9% of the overall income. So when people think that rates are the major contributor for the income for council, that's not correct. It's only, in that case, let's say just straight out rates, 18.2%. So only about a fifth of the income we get comes from that. You've also got other amounts, user charges and fees, $44.9 million, other revenue, $3.4 million. Grants and contributions provided for operating purposes, $28.5 million. Grants and contributions provided for capital purposes, $56.5 million. Investment and interest income, $7.6 million. So you've got a fair few other components to that. So rates, 18.2%, let's call it 20%, one-fifth of our income, if you like. The other part to look at is when you go through and look at that net operating result that I talked about before, that also includes a figure, depreciation, amortization, and impairment of non-financial assets. The main part of that would be depreciation. $54.3 million in our expenses is depreciation. Now, that's taken account of in that $5.8 million loss. So all these figures are the end of 2023 financial year that I'm talking about here. So that depreciation, $54.3 million. Now, some people say, well, we shouldn't be counting that. That's not a cash flow number. And they're correct, it's not. But if we are managing council correctly, if councils are doing their job correctly, if our staff, our financial staff are doing their job correctly, you should be taking into account depreciation because you want to be able to renew assets when they need renewing. You don't want to get to the stage where you find that a road, a building, a bridge, some asset that we've got, some physical asset that we've got needs to be replaced. And then we say, oh, where are we going to find the money for that? I hope we can get a grant. I hope we can find the money somewhere. I don't think that's a great way to run a business that's worth $3 billion. So putting money aside, having depreciation in there makes sense so you've got that money there. If I can use a fairly simple example. Back in 2014, we opened Barden Park 
international standard athletics track. Now, we toured around to a few other athletics tracks when we were getting our ideas on how to build that track and do the best possible job. And I remember one visit we went to down in Sydney, it was, where we visited a track down there, and I noticed a fair amount of wear in lane one on the track and a bit of wear in lane two to the point where the top surface had worn through and it didn't look great. And I wondered how effective that was as a running track then. And I remember talking to the manager of that particular facility and I asked him about this particular part and he said, yeah, but it's in terrible condition. We need to replace that. We haven't got the money to replace that. And so we're trying to work out how we can do that. But it's due for replacement. It has been for a couple of years. I'm not sure when we'll get the money for it. And so eventually we'll get to the stage where we'll be able to do that. One of the things that we did when we built Barden Park was we said we need a certain amount of money to run that both on a day-to-day basis but also medium term. So, for example, we need money to mow the lawn and we need money to keep the place tidy and clean and the electricity, etc. But we also need to be putting money aside, depreciation, for things like a track replacement. Now, we worked out that about every 10 years you should do a resurface of the track and that's going to cost you about a million dollars. So we need to depreciate that and make sure we've got that money feeding into a fund. So when it gets to that time, when we need to replace that, then we've got the money there. Now, it doesn't stop you from looking for grants. And the reason I pick that example out as one that I wanted to point out in terms of that depreciation on how that should work is we were putting the money aside for that. We had the money set aside for that track replacement. We knew it was coming up because next year is its 10-year anniversary. But we also went out looking for grants. Now, we got a grant. We got a grant that will cover, essentially, the cost of the replacement of that track. Fantastic. That money that's been set aside for that, we can then use on other things. So it's not like it's been a bad idea to put that money aside. We can still use that money for other various components. It would normally be an internally restricted asset. We'd have it internally restricted just for the replacement of that track. But then... Because it's an internal restriction, we can then use it for something else if we need to. So that's the background. We had a group called AEC who were doing uh, some consultancy work for us on our finances and looking at what we need to do. Now, again, as I said before, we can't keep going along. $29 million the last council was responsible for. We've already got a $5.8 million loss that this council was responsible for. We've got to turn that around. We can do a few things. When it comes to a budget, we can increase income we can decrease expenses. We've probably got a third thing we can do that not everyone has the ability to do in terms of their own personal budget or their business budget. We've got some business assets. We run a number of businesses. We own a caravan park. We own a childcare centre. We own an airport. We own livestock markets. So we own a number of businesses. Do we run those businesses in the most efficient way? Do we run those businesses in the best possible way? Are there ways we could run those businesses more effectively or more efficiently or stop losing money on some or go the other way? Can we make more money out of some of those or do we need to be in that business? And so one of the ones was the caravan park. Many, many years ago, I tried to sell the caravan park. And when I say I tried to sell it, I put a resolution through council to look at selling that in the end. It got up for an initial discussion with the community and then when it came back the community told us loud and clear they didn't want us to sell it. So we've kept the caravan park but I looked at that and I went well we compete with a number of other caravan parks. Do we need to be in the business of caravan parks? When it was first open it made sense but do we really need to be in that business now? If not then maybe we should get rid of it. In the end 
we've contracted that out. We do a long-term contract, NRMA's got that contract. So we don't have to worry about it. We get a, a set return on that in terms of return on that income, and we don't have to worry about that particular part of it. So that might be a way that you might deal with some of those assets as well. The pool, we already know that we've contracted the pools out, and the idea of that was that was a $400,000 saving. So they're the sort of things that we should be looking at in addition to other expenses we might try and save or just increasing income. Now, if you increase income, then what you've got to do is a special rate variation. The process for increasing rates is that each year, IPART, the Independent Pricing and Regulatory Tribunal, makes a determination on how much councils are allowed to put their rates up by. And that typically sits around CPI, although CPI has been much higher the last couple of years. So we're talking about CPI has been maybe 6 or 7%, and we might be allowed, say, 3%. So it's hard for us to keep up with the ongoing expenses of running council when inflation's running much higher than we're allowed to put our rates up by. So then various councils, and many councils have done it across the state, apply for a special rate variation. And you've got to go through a public consultation process, justify why, justify how much, etc. And it, it is a complicated process because you typically put it in, well, sometimes a one year or two year, but multiple years kind of makes sense to do it. The only one I've ever been personally involved with was one that we did for the theatre, a long time ago, we when we were working at how to pay for the Dubbo Regional Theatre and Convention Centre, the new 500-seat theatre we built there, we put through a special rate variation for 2.5% for two years, two consecutive years, to give us enough money to be able to pay for that theatre. And I think that was a good process, good, open, honest communication with the community, 2.5% each year for two years to be able to build this theatre. That's where we ended up with, and that was then approved. What we're looking at at the moment is how do we best go forward and one of the options was a rate increase. And we it's complicated because when you talk about how much you might put it up by each year, it's not taking into account the rate peg. So for example, we said for our finances to be in better condition, we need to look at a 10% increase next year. Well, IPART might say 3%, they might say 2%, they might say 5%, but we're saying 10% overall the reality is that it's not going to be 10% above the rate pegging amount. Let's say the rate pegging amount was 5%, then we're really only looking for an extra 5% in that process. So it's a small amount there, and it depends how you want to run with it. I suppose what I found most disappointing over the last couple of weeks is that what you need to do, from our perspective, is say to the community, we've got a problem. I've just run through that $29 million that we lost there, and then another $5.8 million in the last financial year just gone. Anyone would look at that and say, you can't do that forever. What's the solution? Tighten your belt, get more efficient, get rid of some of those assets maybe that you that are underperforming, cut other expenses you can, but maybe at some stage you need to increase the income. We need to have that good, open, honest communication with our community and go through the process and say, do you want us to cut services? We can reduce expenses, but we might need to cut some services to do that, lots of services in our community. To give you an idea of what we typically find in our submissions around the draft budget, if we looked at all the requests we had from the last budget, the 2023, end of financial year 2023, budget that we put forward for the budget for this year we're currently in, if we said yes to all of those different submissions that we received, that would have added about $8 million to the bottom line. People in those submissions typically don't say, can you reduce services? 
can you reduce facilities? They typically say, can you give us more services, more facilities? Can you mow the lawns more often? Can you make the edges of town look tidier? Can you give us new facilities? That all costs money. So the conversation we need to have with the community is, do we cut back some of those various facilities, the maintenance, the, the costs of running council? Do we cut some of those back so that will reduce your service levels? Cost of living pressures are there for people on a day-to-day basis. There's no doubt about it. Some parts of our community might say, yes, please. Cut back what you do. Cut those expenses down. Other people might say, no, I don't want to lose any of those, those facilities I've got. I'm okay with a small increase. Maybe a, a 5% above the rate peg. Maybe a 2% above whatever it might be. I'm happy for you to put up that a little bit. No one's ever happy, I suppose, for you, for you to charge more. But, but I can see for us to maintain what we've got in our community, yes, you might need to put that up a little bit. But you want to have that good open dialogue with the community and really get them to understand. Unfortunately, there was a bit of sensationalist uh, reporting or discussion, I suppose it would, you would call it, on social media that had headlines of 37% rate increase, which sounds terrible. It didn't go into the nuance of that to say that that was 37% over four years if the rate peg was 2.5%. So those small nuances, those small issues there, and also say no to that, that's fine, because if someone says to me, do you want to pay more for something or less, I will say I'll pay less. But if someone says you can pay less and get less, then suddenly, oh, hold on, I don't know if I love that idea anymore. So the disappointing part was that that commentary was going around social media when really it needed to be a conversation with the community. In the end, the recommendation from the committee was not to go ahead with a special rate variation for next financial year. And that was probably based as much as anything on timing and the way we need to have that communication with our community. In other words, we'd need to go out to the community now. We're getting towards Christmas. You've got January when people are often away and, and it's hard to get a lot of engagement with the community. And we'd have to have the submission into IPART by the 5th of February. Well, I just don't know that was enough time for the community to really be fully engaged in that conversation and, and council thought the same thing. So again, it could change when the council meeting comes along, but at this stage, that's where they've gone. So rather than going for anything next year, they've said delay it a year, defer it until the 2025-2026 year, and that consideration for a special rate variation uh, application be made, or, or the, you consider that special rate variation application, and again, in that consideration, you would do some extensive community consultation over the next year to see what the community wants, what the community thinks about all of that, and then make a decision in February 2025 as to whether or not an application will be put in. So there's a lot more detail on that, and there's a lot more detail in the actual business papers if you're interested in some of those details. Go through and have a look at that. I'm going to go through over the next couple of weeks and just do a bit of a comparison over the last five, six years about how things have changed in terms of rates income, grant income, all sorts of things there. But keep that in mind, that 18.2%, $38.9 million is what council receives in ordinary rates in the 2023 financial year. That's what we received out of the $213.64 million of income, $38.9 million of that was in rates. Okay, so we're at the end almost of our last solo one before Mark Barnes comes back. And I normally do a limerick at the end of each particular 
segment, each particular podcast. And I like doing that with Mark. Mark has a bit of fun with the Limerick and, and uh, usually gives me his English teacher grading on the Limerick each week. But this one, I thought I'd do something different. With Remembrance Day that happened on Saturday, I actually talked to the president of the RSL sub-branch and a few of the members, and I said there seemed to be a bit of a tradition for poetry way back when the, um, if you like, back in the early part of the 19th century. And, and of course, Banjo Patterson, Henry Lawson, end of the 1800s, early 1900s, were writing some of their fantastic poetry. And poetry did seem to be a bit more part of Australian society. And I think there probably would have been some poetry that occurred on the battlefield and even some short poems or limericks. And certainly there were poems written about the, the time. So for the official mayoral speech on Saturday at Remembrance Day, I did actually talk to the RSL sub-branch and I said, would it be okay if I wrote a poem rather than actually doing a normal speech? And I wrote one and sent it to them to just make sure that I wasn't out of line and I was going down the right path. Anyway, they had a read of it and came back and said that they actually loved the idea of something that was a, a bit of a nod of respect to the people from that day and so they basically gave me the ticket for approval. So this is the poem. I'm going to do the poem. So rather than a limerick today, I think Remembrance Day is a little bit more serious and certainly it was the most significant event in the last week and I didn't really want to do a, a trivial limerick about something that is so serious. So I've written this poem. I haven't actually got a name for it. Someone said to me on Saturday after Remembrance Day, what was the name of that poem? And I said, well, I only just wrote it during the week so I haven't got a name for it yet so I'll have to come up with a name for it. But I'll do this instead of my limerick this week. And this is obviously about Remembrance Day. In the morning light of a younger sun, across foreign fields where rivers run, with the haunting bugle's solemn song, we recall the brave, the young, the strong. On the eleventh hour of the eleventh day, of the eleventh month, with skies of ashen grey, we mark the silence of that hour when peace came forth with soothing power. For diggers came from the bush and towns, from Dubbo's plains to the Sydney sounds. They bore the heat, the cold, the rain, and the burdens of a soldier's pain. They fought for peace neath foreign skies, in lands afar where the poppy lies. Their courage etched in history's page, courage and valour beyond their age. The guns fell silent, the war did cease, but for the return no sweet release. Visions of horror, the echoes of fight, would haunt their slumber night after night. Aussies standing side by side in trenches deep in waves so wide. The great war's end, the victory won. Many lads returned, but not every one. Yet sad the truth that time reveals, the war was not to end all ordeals. Conflicts arose like storms anew. Again our soldiers stood Steadfast and true, in Flanders' fields and on Gallipoli's shore, the Anzac spirit forevermore. In times of peace and hardship both, that spirit lives, it's our solemn oath. For over 100,000 souls, their names etched on honour rolls, died serving us through seas and mud, their legacy written with their blood. From the Somme to the Kokoda track, in far-off lands, in the outback, when mateship and the courage saw, the Anzac spirit, who could ask for more? The poppy red, the cross is white, 
remind us of their valiant fight. In silence, we bow our heads to their plight, forever grateful they took up the fight. For it's our privilege, our solemn right, to remember them to hold the light of freedom's torch handed down to live in peace in every city and town. As we stand here, let our hearts pledge to honour them on history's edge. For our tomorrow they gave their today. In our memories they shall forever stay. And further on this hallowed day, to those who've gone, we softly say, your sacrifice won't be in vain. In memory's heart you'll always reign. With our gratitude, as our feelings reflect, in solemn promise we shall never neglect. For their noble quest, we owe them all a debt. And we will remember them, lest we forget. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Straight from the Mayor's Mouth. As I mentioned, Mark Barnes will be back next week and we'll go back to our normal two-person scenario, which again, I think is a little bit better, but hopefully that gives you an update on what's been happening on council. As always, if you've got feedback, mayor at dubbo.nsw.gov.au. look forward to talking to you again next time. Straight from the Mayor's Mouth with Matthew Dickerson from Dubbo Regional Council.